Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. This is Charlie Gilkey, and I'm delighted to have Todd Satterston with me on the Creative Giant Show. Todd helps business experts build businesses. He started with book publishing and learned everything he could, serving as agent, editor, marketer, publisher, right scout, and bookseller. Todd is an author himself, having co-authored the 100 best business books of all time and wrote every book as a startup. He has gone on to help others build speaking businesses and marketing platforms to support their overall practices. Todd lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife, Amy, and his three children. Todd is one of those people I want to be when I grow up. He's deeply generous, mindful without being aloof, and brilliant at seeing how ideas can turn into books worth reading and businesses worth building. He's been instrumental in my development as an author and thought leader as well, so I wanted to thank him before we start there. Todd, thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show today. My, what an introduction. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. Alrighty, so I know a lot about you because, well, we have a little bit of a history, but so listeners understand where you're coming from. Tell us how you got started in the business book arena. Yeah, you know, um, I have been interested in business thought for a really long time. Uh, I would say that the the glimmer of what led me uh, sort of down this path was probably the first issue of Fast Company magazine. You know, we go all the way back to 94, 95. Um, I mean, I could remember when I would get um, the magazine and I'd almost wait like it was the Christmas wish book from Sears every month to see what they were doing. I mean, that's just, I felt how exciting what what that magazine was doing. Uh, Both Alan Weber and, um, I'll think of of his uh, co-founder in a second. Um, What they were doing with that magazine, they cared about books, they cared about business ideas, there was something that was changing. Um, And, that magazine gave me courage to kind of go down this path of exploring and amplifying um, business ideas. Um, I was a blogger. I was one of the first business book bloggers in 2003. There were like 12 of us. Um, And I still know most of them and everybody's gone a bunch of different ways. But so I was was writing. And then that, you know, it's that story of all these bloggers who kind of did that stuff. And that's what led me to uh, CEO Reed. And, um, 800 CRE, which is this wonderful company in Milwaukee, specializes in business books. Spent a lot of time there, did a lot of reading, wrote a book. Uh, And then just from there, I've kind of, uh, I spend my time now helping a lot of people in that space. Yeah, Yeah. it's a great sort of look at like whatever weird thing you have, like business books. Todd, you and I have talked about this. Like it's weird to like get excited about that business book that that you see or when, when a publisher sends you one or you see it on the bookshelf. Or weirdos that way, right? And you just kind of leaned into that weirdness. Because 94, you were still at GE at that time, right? I was, yeah. All right. So um, he was a mechanical engineer designing products at GE. Making them, Charlie. Making them. I was a a manufacturing guy. I was an ops guy. Ah, I Um, I thought you were just on the design and prototype side. Yeah, no. um, I did a lot of stuff, um, um, both purchasing and and shipping and uh, quality. I was a black belt. I was a six big of a black belt. That's when I was big at GE. So wow. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I it, it's um, 
I would say I was, I've always been interested in business. I mean, I had a lawn mowing job when I was 11. Uh, I did internships and I was, uh, you know, the, doing the internships, I did internships at Dow Chemical as a, main, as a mechanical engineer. Always interested in business. Uh, and I love, you know, I've described it to some people, of my, my love for businesses in that it's the application of the arts and sciences, you know. It's, uh, we, we take, you know, uh, like design is the direct application of art in, in so many ways. And so I love business because one, it's the application of all of those things. And two, there's never, there's never one answer. There's never one answer to whatever it is, that, or however it is you're going to um, approach a problem. There's, there's a lot of things that'll work. Um, and the, the joy and fun in it is figuring out which one will. Yeah, that's very similar to the reason I love business in the sense of coming from a philosophy background. Like, how mm -hmm. does one jump from being a philosopher to, and, you know, a military officer to, you know, a business um, guy? And I'm like, well, when you look at the human problems that we have and the solutions to them, largely we're going to find them through business given the larger social and political institutions that we mm -hmm. have now. So if you mm -hmm. really care about human thriving and, you know, mm -hmm. all of those types of things, you need to care about business and economics. I didn't know that 10 years ago. But hey, that's why I'm doing what I do now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, one of the great things I love about the show is that people that I do know, I learn more about. And so I thought you were on the on the um, prototyping <laughs> side, not not the engineering side. Um, so what triggered you to move from 800 CEO Re to your own entrepreneurial venture? You know, it was um, it was a combination of things. It, it's um, we had. This is sort of 2008, 2009 time period. Uh, we had survived the really traumatic downturn at the end of it, and it was somewhat questionable as to whether or not we were going to. Um, CEO Reed is a part of, was a part of a, a bookstore chain in Milwaukee. It had four stores. Uh, it was an 82-year-old institution. And as everyone knows and, and how much has changed in publishing in the last 10 years, um, the downturn um, affected lots of decisions within the company, and, and the owners um, made a very difficult decision to, to shut down all of the retail stores. And so uh, had we not done that, we probably, you know, probably would have lost everything. Um, and so we sort of survived that. And then it was a question of, um, should I stay and kind of continue to um, foster this uh, organization kind of in its new form? Or does it make sense for me? Is this a time for me to do someone else, uh, something else? And and what happened at the same time is, uh, you know, we'd we'd had our third child. Uh, my wife was trying to figure out what she wanted to do next, and uh, she decided she wanted to pursue a new career path, and that sort of led us to Portland. And she's been studying Chinese medicine now for, um, I guess, three years. And uh, so what caused me to leave was partially what was going on in the business, but it was also uh, a set of personal decisions. I, I sort of felt uh, we needed to do something else and that this was a time to be able to leave and um, build a practice around all these things that I knew. Yeah, I know that it was largely, you mentioned the 2008-2009 timeframe where we had this large mm. macroeconomic downturn, right? Mm. Um, but I'm also curious, and it's hard to speculate to what degree, you know, it would play a difference, but there's also about the time of this massive book disruption that, that you talk a lot about, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you think one weighed heavier than the other? Was it a confluence of events or um, talk to us a little about, about that? Sure. So 
what's interesting about 800 CEO read is that um, the it was the macroeconomic event that really affected them. Um, what they specialize in is um, bulk sales in terms of getting books any literally anywhere in the world. If you need more than 10 copies, they're experts at it. Uh, what you find is that when you get into that kind of um, realm of book publishing, it actually is remarkably hard actually to get a box of 25 books exactly where you want them. Uh, so what happened was corporate sales stopped. Like the, if you, that is a uh, books for the most part are a discretionary spend. Uh, I mean they're important, but when you think of training, when you think of anything related to that, that was the first thing that was cut, um, and that was really what the majority of the effect is. Um, uh, CEO Reed is you know they're fifty percent larger than I was there uh, when I was there five years ago. So they have managed to find this wonderful, wonderful niche in. Uh, the book space, and they do more than business books now. They actually try to, in that niche I just described about, it turns out there's lots of people who need that help in getting books from point A to point B for, and them showing up exactly when they need to to be distributed to a large number of people. So I would say that um, the, it was economic. It was a short-term blip. Uh, it's funny, my wife and I were just talking about this yesterday. I was like, oh, what would have happened if I would have stayed? Um, and, you know, we'd be bigger and, and we'd be doing different things now. Um, they have a really good team there. Um, I still uh, stay in touch with them. I, I think they continue to do great things. But to your question of is it economic or um, sort of disruption of publishing, for them and, and what they've managed to do, um, the, the see or read portion of that business was they've been able to survive. The bookstore side of it, the one I mentioned that was closing, they were 100% affected by uh, really um, – Barnes and Noble, and then Amazon, and uh, and then digital. Uh, you know, you have three made. It's actually when you look at publishing, it's been pretty amazing. When you look at the amount of disruption that's happened in that industry over the last um, four years, it's the same thing that's happened to a lot of people. It was big box. You know, your traditional retail. You had your your mom and pop shops. Then you had um, big box come in. Then you had online happen, and then you had digital happen. And so to be able to survive all three of those and still have a thriving business, I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, well, you did exactly what I was going to ask you to do because of all the people who, you know, of all the people who know about the book disruption and the publishing things, you're one of my go-to guys, right? Mm -hmm. And so we talk a lot about this, and especially in the online space, like, oh, publishers are doing this, and the book industry is going there. We don't know if Barnes and Noble is going to be open in two years, all of this type of stuff. But if you could give us kind of the three, four-minute overview of what's happened since, say, 2003, or whenever you think there's been some critical changes, just to catch everybody else up who haven't been following sort of the history and evolution of the book publishing industry circa, you know, the, the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're going to pick that time frame, obviously the most important is uh, the digital disruption, you know, the move from paper to um, device. And where I would mark that with is I would mark the start of that in, I think it's July of 2007. This is when the first Kindle was introduced. Mm -hmm. And if there's any of your listeners who own the first Kindle, you would have bought that device and said, yeah, this isn't going anywhere. Uh, it was it was horrible. It was it was a horrible reading experience. It was um, uh, you, why would I put a book down for what it is that happened? But you know, if you had any visibility to what it was that was going to happen, uh, you knew that you knew this was the start of something. The device was going to get better. Um, the delivery mechanism was going to get better. And what I kept looking to is I kept looking to that we were lagging music by about five years. You know, you go back to two thousand two. 
and the iPod gets introduced. And yes, there are other players, but the iPod was the one that mattered. And then the iTunes store, and you saw this massive disruption of, of music. So I was looking like, oh, God, look where we are now. Uh, we're really at the cusp of that. And there were these wonderful questions of, is it going to be the same as what music was, or is it going to be different? And there were certain th things that were the same. Um, taking um, this, uh, the music from one form into another, having it all in one spot, having very centralized distribution. Um, but what's interesting is that there were things that were kind of fundamentally different, I think, as well, which is um, what, what really affected the economics of music was the unbundling of the album, you know, going from 10 to $15 a pop that you're going to spend to sending 99 cents. Books have wonderfully been able to avoid that. Um, we still pretty much pay $10, $11, $12, $13 for a digital book. Um, and there's, there's a whole part of the market that's way less than that. Um, that certainly is something that's happened. But what really, so, so we have that part of it. Um, and what you had is you had better devices. And what I said is I said, you know what, this is going to be a five-year cycle. And what it's going to do is we're going to build up to it. It's going to climax, and then we're going to fall out of it. And from that point on, we're just going to watch the effects of what happened. And amazing, I mean, I don't want to toot my horn too much, but it's amazing how it, how it actually ended up kind of turning out that way. Uh, what you had is you had Amazon trying to grab as much share in the, the digital space. You had Apple sort of coming in. Nook was from Barnes & Noble was a little bit uh, further behind. Um, when things Apex, what you had is you had um, Barnes & Noble going out of business in 2009. <clears throat> Looks I, I meant Borders, Borders not Barnes okay. & Noble. Borders going out of business. Um, that same year, you had Amanda Hocking, who was the first independent um, author who was just putting her, her work out through the Kindle platform directly, um, who made over a million dollars in one year. Um, so you saw independent publishing happening in a real way. You saw retail being um, disrupted finally. Um, and, and what you have now is, you know, when you look where we're at, publishers are kind of in the same spot that they were. Um, they're, they're actually making just as much, if not more, money than they ever have. So they've survived economically. The, the retail channels, independents have actually kind of leveled off. And there's this question of, is there space for big box? Um, there's a wonderful question continuing. I mean, I love that the, the best question for authors right now is, should I self-publish or should I traditionally publish? That both have these equally compelling cases and there and being someone who spends a lot of time in this space consulting with with folks who are thinking about this there's really compelling cases on both sides still for whether or not you do it like everybody goes oh commercial publishing why would i do that you know what there's a lot of good reasons of why you might do that um it depends on where you are what you're doing what you're publishing uh what the publisher could do for you so i think what we're, we're seeing now is that so if that sort of ended in 2012 what we're seeing is these kind of last couple of years of like the turbulence is kind of calming a little bit, and the effects of that are now um, coming to fruition. Uh, we're seeing some consolidation in publishing, uh, the big one obviously being Penguin and, and Random House. Um, that's a very big deal. Um, if you look at most of the books on your shelf, uh, probably 70% of them ha either have a, uh, if you looked inside, it would either have a Random House or a Penguin um, imprint on them. Uh, maybe not. Maybe that might be a little bit high. but. Um, if, if that were three or four minutes to give you a, a quick sense of what's going on in publishing is that there's a lot, there's a lot that's going on in publishing. It's been uh, a very interesting time to work in the industry. Yeah, and to riff on what you said, the five-year lag, if we look back, 
I think you're right about that, Todd, because if we look back, 2009 or so is when Pandora was really starting to get some steam. Mm. And if mm-hmm. we look where we are now at the end of 2014, um, I think the Kindle Unlimited is about at that same place where we start looking at having either some type of subscription to get music and things like that. So I think, you know, it's still about on that five-year cycle. And and what I'd add to that, Charlie, is... Um, if, if, you, if you do that five-year thing, if we're lagging music by five years, the hot thing in publishing right now is, are we going to have subscription service? So it's, whether it's Kindle Unlimited, there's Oyster, there's Scrib, there's a lot of people who are trying to come into that space. Um, the, and it's very much like um, Pandora in that, um, I mean, Pandora had a door through a radio to be able to do what they wanted to do. Uh, what's interesting in publishing is we don't necessarily have that. We don't have a, a way to it. So most of those services are limited by the publishers who want to participate. Um, and so we don't have that benefit kind of in the Pandora space of like, oh, I could just turn it on. Really, I'm going to get the radio. I'm going to get everything. Whereas in, in the subscription space, it's a little bit limiting. And it's the same thing as Kindle Unlimited, that publishers are, are very leery about um, what that business model does to them. Yeah. Am I going to get unbundled like the music industry what, what, what was? It's a, it's a really valid concern. Um, you know, I've been watching more of the fiction space because I was writing a science fiction sort of short story earlier this year, and I'm like, what, what am I going to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in that space, I think we actually see things very, very similar in that right now in the fiction space, short stories are huge because you can buy them for 99 to, you know, 299 or 99 cents to 299. And in some ways it's like a single, it's like you get this short story that you can read and get through in 30, 45 minutes. And then people will go on and buy the next one and the next one and the next one. And so I see a lot of the similarities in what we're talking about here. Just, just right there, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. We're just going back to what Charles Dickens did in 1856 when he did all of stuff like nobody everybody always forgets that tale of two cities and a christmas Carol. all these were published as serialized works um and it's because at that time uh it was difficult for someone to have the money to be able to buy a book and so he published them in a much smaller booklet form and um literally there the 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 ship would pull up with the books on it and there'd be people screaming from the from the dock what happens in the next one you know because they most people had read it on the way over uh, so it's just uh, so it's funny to see how you know um, when as we create more price points, what that then allows us to do, and how what a wonderful new way, a new entry point into uh, the market now. Of it used to be a book had to be this thick. I'm you know I'm, I'm got two fingers yeah. here, and it's about two you know that inch to two inch thick because we wouldn't pay we would never pay ninety nine cents for that. We would be like um, uh, or a publisher wouldn't think. I should put it the other way. Publisher would be like, there's no way that I could sell this for 99 cents because it costs too much to make and so on. But it's more the other side of uh, we expect a certain amount if we're going to spend a certain amount for our, uh, for our money. And so I think what happens in physical goods is very different than our psychology of, of digital goods. Yeah, it's, it's very weird because there, there's a cartoon by the oatmeal, <laughs> and I love the oatmeal, but it was like what it's like to buy a, to buy an app from the iTunes store, right? And so he shows all of these different decisions that we make without thinking about it, like would you like fries to supersize that, or would you like you know um, to, to go with this middle size? And we'll spend like $3, $4 here and there all the time, like when we're making purchases for food or normal goods. 
But if you've ever been on the on the app store or you've ever had to buy one of those 99 cents things, there's like this huge economic thing that you go through. It's like, do I really want it? Like, is it worth 99 cents? It just completely changes. And I find it fascinating because it's really like if you walked into a store or if you walked into a restaurant and someone's like, hey, would you like to do this for 99 cents? You're like, oh, sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But in that arena, we're still sort of getting our grips around the value and the cost and, you know, all these types of things. And it's really a fascinating time to be in business and, and, and thinking through these things. Absolutely. All righty. So you mentioned that right now there are really compelling cases for, self, for independent publishing and really compelling cases for traditional publishing. And, you know, we can riff about this for a long time, but we're not going to do that, Right. Um, the question I want to ask, and, and I, it's interesting because I asked Seth this in episode three um, last year, um, but I want to ask you in this one, right? Um, do you, th- for a certain amount of time, independent publishing was really sort of like second rate. Like if you were an independent pub- if you were an independent author, it was like um, you really either didn't have what it take to be a, a traditional author, or there was it was less than uh, a less than approach to publishing. Um, do you think we're past that view or you still think that that still exists? Well, I think there's, there's two sides to that argument. The, the first side is, um, I think we, and I put myself in this category, we as authors, um, we have some pretty big vanity problems when it comes to our work. And so I think a lot of what you're describing there is whatever it is that you bring to the project, um, to channel Seth for a moment, uh, he would say, um, are you waiting to be chosen? Um, and so if that's the case and that, that part of it is very real to you, then I think you could certainly have the perspective that um, I have to be published. I have to have a commercial publisher. Um, I think there's this other part, and, and I don't think it's um, – I don't think the perception was always, uh, I don't think it was ever as strong as people want to make it out to be. Um, I think what we forget is that the majority of people in the United States are going to read one book in 2015. One, right? And chances are they're going to buy it from some place that has books. And so what what we don't want to sort of acknowledge there is that they're probably going to find it in a bookstore or an online retailer. And in the past, the only way you were going to find your way into one of those places was by uh, being commercially published. Uh, what you know, sort of the rise of independent publishing has allowed is that we can start to show up in, in more places. So we could show up online, but again, online sales, you know, it's still 30, 40, you know, a bestseller is 50%. Um, we forget how important the bricks and mortar still is to actually most uh, most physical products um, being sold. So um, I maybe I'm ch- changing the premise of your question, Charlie, a little bit because I I don't know if I I ever bought it. I, I just think that in the past books couldn't be places where people would give them legitimacy, or you had to be commercially published to be where you thought. Now there's other venues. It still continues to matter like uh, 70% of the books you read are probably recommended by someone else. And so if they say, oh, I bought this on Amazon or you know, it's this little short thing, you're going to go there, you're going to buy it, whatever the case might be. Um, so it, it, within publishing, 
somehow we accept it a little bit more or somehow from a vanity case because I think we understand that uh, most importantly, the customers are now where we need them to be to be able to have a successful book that we could just have as a Kindle download. Um, that's possible now. I don't think that was possible five years ago. Um, maybe it was. Um, but I think more and more we're finding. But what everybody has to continue to remember, and I, I don't care what category you're in, media, uh, in particular books, is still a hits-driven industry. You're going to have a set of books, and it's going to be a very small set. They're going to sell more than a million copies this year. And when I say small set, I mean like two hands, tops, probably less than that. And you're going to have a million books that are going to sell less than 100 copies. right? So 10 books, more than a million. A million books that are going to sell less than 100. Um, so this whole like, oh, I don't know, like this perception thing, I've, I've never really bought it. I've played in both spaces. And um, I've, you know, my first book was a disaster. Uh, my second book was commercially published. It was successful. Uh, the third book we used in uh, very much an indie model. It did okay for the market that it was in, but it was pretty small. Um, so I th- I, it so depends on what you want to do, what you want to make have happen. Don't let that, it should be an option. If we're going to act like business people, what we should understand is that there are different markets for different things. And then if I'm trying to find an audience for my book, maybe I want to keep the capital low and enter through the indie market. If I do have a lot of audience and I already know that I can make this successful, then I want to publish it maybe commercially. Um, it just depends on the circumstance for the author. Yeah. What I want to pull out there is, again, approach it as a business slash strategy decision because I think that's going to help you guide it better. Because I'm on the side, Todd, where we're quite honestly, I'll talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and aspiring authors and things like that. And they're, they still have that stigma that like they want the book to like matter in a certain way. And they think that for it to matter in that way, it needs to go the traditional publishing route mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like reaching the readers quickly, so on and so forth. Or, or the, the, I guess there's two thoughts that I have when I think about this. The first is, um, we generally as authors get the, the, the cart before the horse. Like, and I don't mean just like a little bit in front. I mean the cart's down the street and the horse is catching up. And that, did you find anybody who was interested in this topic to start with? Uh, I, I said the other day, I, I put this tweet out the other day, it said, um, writing, the book, writing a book is the work of an artisan. Um, making money from a book is the work of an entrepreneur. And those are two like, really different things. Those are very different activities. And I think that we convolute them a little bit. Or we do, and the problem is like, it's really hard to put both those hats on at the same time. They don't fit quite right. One falls off and then like, the other one's kind of on there and we're thinking like that. And so um, if, if, it, if the, I want it to be successful and I want to make money and I want to have an impact, it's like if that part matters, then we need to think of ourselves as an entrepreneur. I don't mean like a financial entrepreneur. I mean an idea entrepreneur. Like, can I find an audience? Uh, will this idea spread? Um, what, uh, uh, do I have a following already to have proof that this thing, that, that this thing can work? Um, you know, the, the last book that did every book is a startup. You know, I spent a lot of time talking about that because I think uh, it is a startup. And I think it's when you look at there's wonderful metaphors that you could do to, to talk about how publishing looks like venture capitalism and how authors look at our entrepreneurship. Um, if we brought that lens to our projects, um, if our entrepreneurs brought that lens to that project, rather than being, oh, my book, I want my book to be successful, 
um, the, the heart of the artisan there, uh, I think we'd have a better chance of those projects being successful. Yeah. I try to talk about it in ways like, on the one hand, if you want to put the artisan on, on in, in view, we start talking about a lot of the aesthetic considerations coming in. Like, you know, we can go into all of those things around the aesthetic value of the book, how it fits within, you know, what it sounds like, blah, blah, blah. We go through that whole thing. But on the other hand, when we start talking about the pragmatic features of it, like does it make a change, so on and so forth, you end up in this very interesting position where it's like, okay, you can write say a what I sometimes call like a a high lit business book right that that's got this very high caliber like people at you know Harvard Press are going to love it so on and so forth and completely miss your audience or you can do the other way right you can have a really phenomenal book that that meets that meets the masses that understand it but completely misses that audience and so you really do have to come back. I agree with you. It's, it's not that the cart is before the horse. It's just there's no horse, right? They just have a cart. <laughs> and they're still trying to figure that out. There you um, go. And so, yeah, you know, that that's that's interesting. You know, I wanted to – sometimes I actually do make questions before these shows, right? And mm-hmm. so I was going to ask you about what makes it so hard from your perspective. Why is this author-entrepreneur convergence that you have to have to be a successful – well, to be – I won't say to be successful because even that begs the question. You can success can be played out, but we're really seeing that for many authors, you have to play this author entrepreneurial role simultaneously to to get the type of result that you want to have, i.e., people buying and reading your book. Um, why is that so hard from your perspective to get that convergence right? I think it's um, I think it's driven by the intersection of um, a felt need. And so felt need is just this idea that uh, will someone cross the street to go into that bookstore because they have to have your book because it just came out. Um, and on the one side, really, it, here's what I'd say. I think we're human. That's the problem. And what I, what I mean by that is that we care about what we care about. And as much as we want to try to drop our ego and we want to try to like get into the customer's mind, it's incredibly hard. Um, and so I remember when I left CEO Read, my first uh, plan was that I was going to write a book. I had this really, really great idea. Um, and that, like, this doesn't this sound like the start of like every author's disaster. <laughs> And I, uh, I spent four months, four months researching um, the book, working on the proposal, working on sample chapters. And I remember presenting it to the first person and um, they just said, I don't get it. I said, I can kind of see what's going on in here, but I think you should do this and this and this. Well, I didn't want to do that. That was not the book I was going to write. I showed it to someone else and it's like, different version of, I'm not sure quite where you're going here. And I think the problem is that it's so hard for us. uh, You could say it's hard for us to put the ego down and say, I'm going to write a book that serves others. Um, Kathy Sierra, who's, you know, she's written lots of books. She's um, mostly in the technology space, always says, like, if every three pages there isn't something where the reader is saying, oh my gosh, like, this is incredible. 
Um, not you as the author, like, oh, wasn't that a good turn of phrase that I used there? Uh, if, if the reader isn't having an aha moment that often, that you've probably, sailed, you've probably failed as an author. It's really hard to get outside ourselves. Now, having said that, uh, I, think some, I think one of the best pieces of advice uh, that you can give an entrepreneur, like if we go to the entrepreneurial side of it, is work on a problem that you care about. Like, because that's what's going to give you the fuel to like drive through in those really, really difficult times. So it sounds like that I'm saying, well, you should know the felt need then. Not necessarily. It's the way you might be, your expertise might be surrounding that particular topic. But you've got to focus on the reader. You've got to focus on who it is that you're writing for. And I think that's where the artisan entrepreneur um, thing breaks down, where the author, uh, they really are making their best attempt. And that's why good editors can be really helpful in the process. They're essentially a trained set of ears and eyes to tell you you're failing here, you're doing well here in, in delivering on what your promise is. But I, I think it's a, it's a wonderfully human problem. Yeah. Let's talk about another wonderfully human problem. Mm. Uh, oftentimes you and I have talked about how you can look at an author and what you see as one of the foundations of their success is a Wolverine-like focus in getting their books in people's hands. And like if, you don't, if they don't have that... You know, you, you they're not a good fit for you, but you know, generally, you you, you question the six the 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 odds that their project is going to be a success. So let's talk a little bit about what you mean there, and if there are any ways that Ullman might be able to develop a bit more of that Wolverine-like focus. Right. Um, I like the word Wolverine because uh, a Wolverine will chew through a wall to get where it needs to. I mean, they're ferocious animals. Um, and after we create this work, uh, this, this book, uh, we, 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 we think that we have to treat it, you know, so preciously. Like it's this, you know, it's fragile. Uh, or we're fragile. Right? And so we somehow at that point then, uh, we, we, we have a really hard time putting the entrepreneurial hat back on. Um, when I tell people the number of things that we did uh, in the first year of the 100 best business books all the time when we launched that, they're like, I couldn't do that. And I'd say, that's cool. That's, that's totally awesome. Um, if you're not willing to sign up for that, though, uh, you're going to have a hard time um, having commercial success with the book that you're going to write. Um, I just said, people read one book a year. Like, one <laughs> how do you get yourself to be the one book? Like we, we probably could end up with like 10% of the people that might read like more than five and that like one tenth of 1% might be you and me, Charlie, that like read, you know, <laughs> 20, 50 books a year. Um, so how are you going to get, like how are you going to um, – Convince the people who are reading those 20, 30, 50 books a year who are dying to find out more about their, the space that you're writing into to be you be one of the books. And that potentially then there's a possibility that that then that either everyone in that category, that's the book they read that year or that maybe there's that potential that like 
it starts to like seep out into other categories in ways that you never expected. Um, if it's not in your email um, signature, if you're not bringing it up in every conversation with somebody new that you're talking to, um, if you're not, uh, chances are like in the space that I work in around business, chances are you're a speaker, you're a consultant, you're a trainer. If books aren't a part of every one of your engagements, you're not very much acting like a Wolverine. Um, books, they're, they're this amazing currency for transmitting ideas that I think are baked. I think they're baked into our DNA. Uh, we've been doing this since 1451. And uh, I think that books have a currency that uh, in some cases is more valuable than money. And so uh, if you don't feel comfortable talking to someone else about your book, even uninvited, uh, then you're probably going to have a hard time making your book successful. Entrepreneurs don't have a problem talking about their business and how they're going to make it work, right? You shouldn't have a hard time if you're an author. Yeah, I, I've noticed that one of the things that, that when I have clients that are going that proud, I'm like, you know what? Get some readers before you, like get, you know, 20, 25 readers that are actually you know, a mix of, of your, your champions and a mix of your critics and a mix of like all of those different things so that before you even hit the market with that book, you actually believe in the book because you've had, you can just trust what they say because you'll never be able to see your own work and think like you'll see all the flaws and you'll have all those sort of human doubts. But if you have that many people saying, you know what, this is a fantastic book. This book did what it did. I want to see more of this book. I think that helps for you to like hit people over the head with the book, not hit people over the head with the book. But, uh, you know, I was at a conference a few weeks ago and um, no one knew I was knew who I was really. Well, I mean, there were like three people. Right. Um, but it was a local conference. And I forget that I've written, you know, the small business life cycle. And I, I forget mm -hmm. that, that. And so the whole way that I introduced myself, I was like, oh, you know, I'm a business advisor, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, OK, so is everybody else here? Right. I when I got home that day, I was kind of like, what happened? Like what what? What did I not do? Because I always do an after-action review when I do, especially local events, right? And I'm like, what did I not do? And it's like, the whole day, I did not mention <laughs> that I have a book. And, and so then, then I had a vision of Todd in my head of like, okay, I lost some Wolverine points on that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I think that's, it's hard. It's hard because you can't see your own work nearly as clearly. And you wouldn't value your own work because it's like your own skin. Like, it's just part of you in that way. I'll, I'll tell you a really quick story. Um, when I went into the, I, I did... Um, Scouting. So what that means is I would help foreign publishers decide what books they wanted to acquire the translation rights to and have them published in foreign markets. Uh, wasn't no well known in that space. Someone had reached out to me. I, I got a little foothold into it, and then I went to Frankfurt Book Fair, which is the big. Um, it's the largest global book fair. It takes place in October every year, and um, I was like, I've got to do something. I've got to do something to show that I really know what I'm doing. I could say I'd written 100 best business books, but that doesn't really, I don't think that is good. So what I did is I took all my writing, everything I'd ever done on uh, business books outside of the 100 best and uh, threw it into a PDF and I took it down. Uh, Charlie and I both live in Portland, so I went to Portland State and they have a print-on-demand center where they can make books while you stand there. I gave them the file. I said, make me eight. They printed me eight books and I took them with me to Frankfurt and I handed them out to every potential client. Um, I signed five, I think, um, that day. Like there was, 
I, like I said, it's better than money. I could have given them $100. They would have been like, whatever. I gave them this book, and they're like, oh, that's absolutely amazing. I remember taking that book and, and changing the cover and, and adding to the uh, – I treat it like software, so I put revision notes in it of all the different versions of it that I made. And I, I printed two copies for a single meeting that I had like six months later. And it was like the Valentine edition, so the cover was pink. It was that time of year. Uh, and I added that, like, I printed this book for this person and this person at this company. And they were like, really? Like, you made a book for us? Like, those are, the, like, the amazing possibilities of, like, one, what, you could, what the power that a book has, but two, how technology has allowed us to do things that weren't even possible. We always thought we had to print 10,000 copies of a book. I can print one at a time now. Um, and to me, that's just, like, I think that's amazing. And I think... If you're not thinking that way, you're not thinking, okay, I have this book. Because here's the deal. Anybody could sell 100 copies. They want to publish a book. I guarantee this is Kepler's number. This is like, you know, we have 125 standard connections sort of around us that we maintain contact with in any given year. You could sell 100 copies, guaranteed. The question, though, is how do you sell 1,000 copies? How do you get to that first 1,000 copies? Because you'll sell that 100. The Wolverine is the one that figures out how to get to the 1,000 copies. Um, because from there, the next point is 10,000 copies normally. And if you can get yourself to 10,000, you're in a good place. You're in a good place. This, I mean, I know we, we, it's always hard to talk about distribution because every industry is different about what counts for a good book, so on and so forth. But um, let's talk about that 1,000 mark, not the 100 mark, because that's the Dunbar number, right? The 1,000 mark. Um, if you reach that 1,000 book sales, what, in a nonfiction arena, what percentile of authors are you in at that point, would you say? Um, 20, 20th percentile. What I mean is that there's a lot of books that are going to sell a hundred copies. You know, the, the, if I gave you kind of that, uh, a cutoff point, I would say it's 5,000 and you're in the top 10% when you get to 5,000 copies. Okay? okay. So that five, 10, 15, you know, you could see how long that tail is at a thousand. I, I, I would argue you're still in the, in the mud um, you're still in the muck of the of the long tail there, um, but um, the 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 best example I've seen of that thousand copies is, you know, for everybody's like, okay, now I'm really depressed, and everybody's listening <laughs> to the podcast, like publishing. Okay, maybe I won't do the book. Here's my argument: How do you find a way to do one thing every week for a year? Find fifty things you can do, uh, and that could be being on a podcast. That could be writing an article for a newsletter. That could be um, speaking at a Rotary Club. Um, I would argue if you could find 50 things to do, and it, ahead of time I guarantee you're not going to be able to predict which ones that is going to have the, the success. But if you're smart about it, you know, build a little bit of tracking into some link, you know, hyperlinks. And um, I would argue that if you're willing to do 50 things, I think you could get to that 1,000 mark. Um, and that might be a lot of work, and that might be more work than people want to put in. Then you have to understand that um, you know it's a business if you want to make your book successful. Yeah, it's not the field of dreams where like you write a good book and then the readers come. No, um, that that's what the artist wants to believe. I think, right? I just write well, it's, really it's that good middle book. of the movie, like any movie that's about anything. It's that like middle second act which is normally five minutes where the person's at the keyboard and they're writing on the whiteboard and they're oh my gosh and they're talking to other people and they're getting really excited 
and then like that montage passes and then suddenly everything's great. Like we need to talk about the second act a little bit more um, because that's, that's where the work's done. All right, so there's, there's a blog post for you or an article on like the second act of the book publishing journey. Mm. All righty. Um, let, let's start wrapping things up a little bit here. Um, I've noticed that in your trajectory from CEO Read, you, you started from CEO Read, which was really about finding quality books and, mm. and, and you know writing about those quality books. As you transitioned out, it was about helping authors create those books. So it was really in that midwifing stage, right? Mm. Um, then it switched really to using the book to make the business aspect of things, right? Mm -hmm. So there's been this very sort of, from my, my perspective, a trajectory. And now you just let me know earlier, now you're working as the general manager of a particular business, helping them get their books out and really leverage their IP. Um, what, what's led you on that trajectory? Has it been just seeing where the need is and following it? Has it been your interest or you know, talk to us a little bit about that? So the other thing that's weird part about publishing that hasn't come up yet is that your goal with publishing should be break even. So whatever revenue that you make on your book, you should reinvest in marketing the book, giving the book away for free. Uh, people hate saying that a book is a business card or a book is a brochure, but it is. Um, but it's a really smart one. Uh, it's like it, it and it, it's way better than a four color fold, you know, fold out. So that leads to this question that, well, okay, if it's not books, then like, how am I going to make money? And you know, chances are, if you're writing a book, you already have some other practice going on. Um, and so for me, I've I've always been interested in what are all the other business models around how it is that if you're a thought leader in some space. What are all the ways you, that you can uh, make money? And that could be coaching and speaking, and it can be um, training. I mean, there's so many different versions of that. It can be benchmarking. It can be um, uh, publishing. Uh, it, it, you could run your own live events. Like, there's just, you know, people who probably hang out with you have thought about a lot of those different things. Um, and so that's what's interesting to me. Now, I, I want to make something clear. If you get publishing right, like you can make a lot of money. Like, um, and what I mean by a lot of money, it's like uh, it could be a six-figure kind of income. Um, uh, but you know, you know, think about it. You're probably going to make five or six dollars a book, um, whether it's digital or print. You know, the way it's worked out, where I think most of the time it's a ten-dollar book, uh, electronic book, and a twenty-dollar print book. That's kind of where the market is kind of starting to level off. And in both cases, do the math, you're going to make about five bucks. So you can do the math of how many copies you got to get to. But like, if you can have a successful publishing operation, you can make a decent amount of money being able to do that. And so for me, what, what, um, what led me to working with uh, just a single company or why I want to do that for a while is, you know, when you think you have a hit, you know, you kind of want to stick with it. Um, and you want to find all the other ways. And you want to, um, like for me, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. You know, I'm, I, I like, I love that, you know, up and to the right. And when you find one that like is really going up and to the right and um, you want to see what's, what's possible. And so that's what sort of led me to it. So the, 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 I think to your listeners, I would just say um, publishing is a really good um, could be a really good thing to add to your um, mix 
uh, to your business model. And so I'm just trying to take everything I've learned in the last, I guess now it's 10 years, um, and can I apply it to one single effort and one individual and uh, try to amplify that uh, even greater and, and watch what happens. Yeah. And as, as we mentioned before we talked, this is a great idea or a great sort of um, model of what, what I call project world in the sense that, you know, oftentimes we get trapped into thinking that once you become an entrepreneur, you're always just going to work for yourself or be freelancer and do your own thing versus this plurality, the spectrum mm-hmm. of which you can be an entre- you can be an entrepreneur, you can, you know, be an entrepreneur that really partners with someone, you can be, you know, you can take a gig for a while that really helps you you know, do what you're trying to do as an entrepreneur. So there's this huge spectrum. And so what I would want to say is much like we said about it's a business and strategy decision. It's not, am I an entrepreneur or am I an employee or am I this or that? It's like, am I doing something that, that fires me up that's out there making a difference and that's, you know, generating success, right? I think there's other ways to think about it, but, you know, those, those are a few. Yeah, I just think that um, when I look at how many times I've, left something and rebooted to do something else. You know, I'm on my fifth or sixth. Um, and the trick is we don't like the uncertainty in between. I don't like it. I don't ever like it. Um, but I think I've done it almost enough times now that I know I could find my way to the next thing if I, if I do this. I, you know, as I said to you before we started, Charlie, this isn't a forever gig. You know, me signing up with somebody, I, I, I'm smart enough to know it's not forever. It might be three years. It might be 10 years. Um, I don't know. And I don't know where it leads after that. Um, but I think I have enough confidence now that I know much better what I'm good at, what I like doing. Um, so it matches up to those, that purpose and, and strategy discussion. And I think finding a way to like be okay with that uncertainty that, that generally happens and, you know, it's a year. It's two years normally in between, you know, as you're kind of starting whatever that next thing is. Like rarely do we just like jump into the next thing. It's like, oh, perfect. I've got the next thing. Everything's fine. Sometimes that happens. I think more often than not, whether it's you have the next thing, you're not sure it's the right thing or whatever the case might be. Um, I believe in your project world. All right. So if you could leave our listeners with one thing, what would that thing or one message that you want them to take away from this uh, podcast? Find the place that um, you can easily see uh, the gratitude that you have for it. Um, I think gratitude's pretty important. It's getting, you know, it's almost turning into a little bit of a buzzy word now. But um, uh, when I think of the stuff that makes me happy, the stuff that um, I find great satisfaction in, uh, it's the same stuff that I'm grateful for. Um, And I think when you can... It's like this virtuous loop almost that when you, the things that you find that gratitude and then give you the energy and, and uh, sort of power to continue on. So I'm a big gratitude fan. Find the places where you can find uh, gratitude in what you do. That's wonderful. All right, everybody. We've been talking to Todd Satterston. You can find him at toddsatterston.com. If you look at the show notes on the website, I'll link up to that. Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. I am grateful to you, Charlie, for having me. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, 
head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.